When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As long as human beings have been around, at least some of us have been expecting the end of the world to come imminently possibly for religious reasons, possibly just because people are pessimistic. Nicholas Guyatt spent part of his career meeting and talking to some of today's apocalyptic cults, and he's joining us to tell us what he learned. Welcome to Future Imperfect. My name is Nick Guyatt. I am a professor of North American history at the University of Cambridge. So I work mostly on US and sort of late colonial North America, so 18th and 19th century. But I have written a little bit about prophecy belief. And unlike a lot of academics, I've written about it for a more popular audience. So um, yeah, I'm really interested in talking about the end times and about how um, ordinary people kind of process the idea that the world might be coming to an end. Yes, I sometimes wonder whether the the idea that it's all coming to an end is actually quite comforting in a bizarre sense in that Phew, it's all going to be over. This horrible life I'm leading is going to be finished and, you know, everybody deserves it and I hate everybody and we're all going to burn. And I, I sometimes wonder whether human psychology is a bit nihilistic like that sometimes, that at the end, everybody would be quietly relieved that it's all over. Well, I mean, you know, human civilization exists in the space between death for an individual and the collective death, I guess, of that civilization or society, right? So in effect... Mm. That idea that collectively we don't succumb to despair is kind of the air that we breathe as a civilization. And if that begins to toxify or we're not able to kind of respire or whatever, then I think we are collectively in kind of a pickle. And this is one reason I got interested in these prophecy folks, because I think as society gets closer to having the means to destroy itself, you really want to keep relatively limited the numbers of people who have a stake in the world ending. Well, I, I think, I mean, we should we should talk about so apocalyptic prophecies are literally prophecies that the world is going to transform or end or collapse yeah. into so, death. Or- 
Yeah, so from the Greek, it would be the opening of the seals. So in effect, we're talking about um, the idea of a kind of end times sequence, which means that the current arrangement of uh, humanity, civilization, society on Earth comes to an end and comes to an end kind of grimly. Uh, and then if you follow this stuff through to the kind of final act, if you like, heaven comes down to Earth or the two kind of marry in a really happy way. And then you get like eternal peace, eternal life, or it, almost like kind of the idea that when you die right now if you're a christian you believe you go to heaven it's like heaven comes to you and heaven comes to history it comes to all of human society in its end times vision so if you can get that far <laughs> things are looking up so it's not actually literally like the reverse of the big bang but clearly the events along the way kind of tear the world apart and it's that part that is a bit scary if you don't have much faith well, that's interesting because my idea of an apocalypse is always catastrophe happening, Mad Max style, people driving around in ludicrously low mileage um, vehicles when they've got no petrol. Um, that's sort of, I always feel that the apocalypse is that. But in fact, what you just said is the apocalypse is passing through that destruction stage to a new sort of golden age. And, and that for me, actually, that's, that's interesting because I've always felt apocalypse is, is the end of everything. But in fact, for these cults, it seems like it's actually the process to get somewhere that's the important thing. Well, I think there are a lot of apocalypses out there, right? So, I mean, one of the interesting things about just dealing with Christian apocalypse, and, you know, there's Islamic apocalypse, and there are all sorts, and obviously uh, the idea of prophecy and the end times is rooted in Jewish faith as well. So you, you can kind of find amongst the big monotheistic religions, different versions of what these end times might look like. And also, I think when you talk about secular folks who might be leading more in a kind of cult direction, so maybe without that sense of the kind of religious, but just with this idea that the world might be coming to an end. Yeah, I'm not saying that those guys have a, a very happy vision on the other side. Generally speaking for Christians, the challenge has been to figure out whether or not you get like a thousand years of happiness before or after the bad stuff. So like the oldest division in Christian prophecy belief is between people who are called premillennialists and postmillennialists. Again, millennial just refers to a thousand years, but the premillennialists believe that everything is going to go to hell before you get a thousand years or more of happiness. Whereas the postmillennialists thought, hey, the world's just going to get better and better and better for a thousand years then some grim stuff, and then heaven comes to earth. So that's like a really old division. And of course, it means they're really different politics because, hey, the world's getting much, much, much better. It's like it's Tony Blair 1997 if you're a post-millennialist. Whereas if you're a pre-millennialist, everything is super grim. So That's interesting. So one of the first splits then in one of the big religions of the world was literally about the interpretation of the apocalypse, whether it's going to get worse before it gets better or whether it's going to get better before it gets even better. Yeah, I'll back up a bit and say that the best way mm. to think about all of this prophecy stuff from a kind of Christian or Jewish perspective, or particularly a Christian perspective, is the Bible is basically a history of human existence. So it contains a bunch of stuff that's already happened in terms of the Old Testament. It contains a bunch of stuff that hadn't happened in the Old Testament, but was kind of predicted and arrived in the New Testament. So again, I don't know how well you guys know your Bibles, but thinking about Isaiah, say, bunch of stuff in Isaiah, the prophet of the Old Testament, is very often seen to have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and Christ's time on earth or whatever else. But then there's a bunch of stuff which still hasn't happened but which is contained in the prophetic books of the Bible. Now, most of those are in the Old Testament. So I'm thinking about things like um, the book of Daniel, book of Ezekiel. So these kind of Old Testament prophets. But there's also a bunch of stuff from the New Testament. So most famously, the last book of the New Testament, book of Revelation, which seems 
sort of like something you might write on LSD. Like that's the very final bit of the Bible, right? But you've also got things like St. Paul's letters, which very often contain these predictions about how the world might end. So just to back up, if the Bible then is like a history of everything that's happened, including stuff that isn't going to happen yet, but will happen in the future, effectively, it's like the Da Vinci Code. I'm sorry to be trashy, but it's like you've got within this book the key to everything that's going to happen. So you as a Christian are then like, hey, if I can just decode what's going to happen, I'm going to know. So this has been for Christians in particular, and I think also for kind of Judeo-Christian culture, if you like, a kind of obsession. It's almost been like a kind of baseline in our culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. But to track back to what you said a second ago, yeah, there are fundamental divisions in how you interpret this stuff because it does feel like it was written on LSD. And if you know anyone who's been on LSD and they're talking to you, they don't always make a lot of sense. So that's the challenge, right? The sense that the most important stuff in human history is in this book, but it's really hard to figure out what it means. Yeah, and, and I presume a lot of it is written potentially deliberately obscurely. I mean, that was part of the cult. Often I find that, you know, we talk about Nostradamus, you know, we write certain styles of rhyme and certain sort of weird illustrative styles of writing help muddy the waters, I suppose, you know, because if you said this exact thing will happen on this exact place, this exact time, and it didn't happen, everybody would just write you off. But if you talk about a gilded cage and a lion being freed or a king in the north attacking a king in the south, they're very flexibly interpreted phrases and you can interpret them with the eye on what you're doing today. And, and, And is that a part of the apocalypse cults in a way that they're they're reinterpreted and reinterpreted throughout history. Yeah, I mean, you basically want to go Game of Thrones, not today's newspaper, right? Like, if you can do all of that, like, there's a man or a beast with seven horns and all the horns have got many horns on, then, you know, thousands of years later, people are like, is that the European Union? Yeah. Um, but this comes back to the question, well, maybe it's a good thing we talk about this early on, of like motivation. So, I mean, I got to confess to you, Jason, I don't have faith. I was raised Catholic, but I don't really have faith at this point in my life. I do think that makes a big difference to the way that you approach all of this. So we can talk about motive on the part of prophets. Everybody mm-hmm. knows, I guess, the thing about prophets is in their own time, they're mostly mocked, right? So we can probably mm-hmm. all mention them, secular and religious, folks who've had a message which in their own time has been ignored. Now, very often that's going to mean that these are not guys with a lot of kind of cultural capital within their moment, but they're always going to be the prisoner of the way that they are remembered. Now, some of those prophets might have been incredibly sincere, writing down what they thought. Maybe some of them were crazy. We'll kind of never know. Or criminal fraudsters. I mean, let's face it, the credulous are a useful source of people to pay you money if you can convince them. This is where it gets a lot trickier in the kind of contemporary moment, because I mean, so I went off and did a kind of road trip uh, when I was writing my book about prophecy believers. And I just went off through the kind of Bible belt and I met a bunch of different people that were wrapped up in all of this right now. Some of them were people who've made a lot of money from it or people who saw a kind of political gain from it. Now, I can't peer into their hearts. I can't tell you categorically, Jason, that they're fraudsters, but I can tell you that the way that their prophecy worked out was really good for them. I also met people in trailer parks who were clearly making like Zippo from this. You know, they were scrabbling to get by. And these were guys who believed in this stuff fervently. And I think for the consumers of this too, 
there is a sincerity, which even if we want to call it a cult, we kind of have to reckon with. So, I mean, that's one of the big insights to talking to these prophecy believers. I mean, what makes a bad person? A lot of these people I would not describe as bad people at all. They might be better people than you or me, but they are hooked into a belief system which has got some kind of problematic implications for them and for the rest of us. But a lot of belief systems actually create a society for you to exist within. And to my mind, it's the, the human companionship that some of these groups generate that people crave. It's not the it's not the details of the prophecy or the details of the church or the details of the synagogue. It's the fact that you've got a community and you feel comfortable around that community. And that community could be a bunch of train spotters. It could be stamp collecting. It could be medieval historians. And they're a familiar group. And it's nice to be with people that sort of share a view. And it must be very difficult to actually escape from these kind of cults. I mean, some of them do end in disaster, don't they? They poison themselves and commit suicide in in horrible, horrible ways. If you think about, say, the Jonestown cult with the sort of drinking the Kool-Aid or thinking about the Branch Davidians, you know, and their kind of showdown with the federal government back in the 90s, I'd say that those are not necessarily cults which are inspired by these kind of Protestant understandings of the end times. I mean, what to me has been really interesting is the way that so much of this sentiment has not ended in everyone drinking the Kool-Aid or like shootouts of the federal government. It's ended in like best-selling book series or terrible Nick Cage movies or video games yeah. where you can kind well, of play yes. the end times. That sort of stuff, right? So to me, yes. it's almost the way that the culture has found ways to contain it that I find more interesting and politics too. I mean, there are, I think, definitely some potentially malign elements of this when it gets into electoral and organized politics, which we could talk about. But but it's this sort of sense of the culture being a sponge for it that I found so interesting. Mm. There's way more people who are reading a novel in the Left Behind series than there are people who are going off and, you know, shooting themselves in a cult kind of thing. Mm. It's also interesting that there is a modern day obsession with prepping and survivalism. There's absolutely fascinating culture online, in particular, in forums about how to survive what is given as a, as a, it is happening, the collapse of society is happening. And people, in part, I think, well, probably wholly fantasize about how they would survive such a terrible apocalyptic scenario. I mean, I've read plenty, I've played plenty of zombie games and watched plenty of zombie things. And there is always that question in one's mind, which is, how would I cope with that situation? And it's kind of almost warm and nice to think abstractly about what would be a terrible and awful situation if it was for real, but it's sort of warm and comforting and somehow safe to imagine it. But actually living through a zombie apocalypse or an end times would be the most horrendous thing you could imagine. And people have lived through things which must have felt like the end times in certain periods in history. Yeah, I mean, I know your background means you're in this space, but it's so funny you mentioned the video games because my daughter, who's 14, and I, we we play video games together. She very often will just watch me mugging through, right? So I remember we went through like a sequence recently where we were playing The Last of Us Part Two. Days Gone, and then Metro Exodus. So these yeah. are these three games, all which have exactly the same basic premise of the world ending. And at the end, my daughter, who's kind of into this whole stuff, is like, could we play something that doesn't involve zombies, please? And I'm yes. like, it's the industry to blame. It's not my fault. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. But in a way, there's something almost exotic or there's something a little voyeuristic about this notion of imagining yourself into this kind of apocalyptic space. Mm-hmm. But I think for most of us, I don't know about you, but when I have to queue to buy petrol or can't buy any petrol, I freak out. 
Like I'm not enjoying the experience of living in a society that seems to be going a bit apocalyptic. So in that sense, I am absolutely this voyeur, fetishist. It's all in the sandpit. But when it comes into the real world, very much not. For our prophecy believers, again, especially in the United States, these guys, I think, are taking a much closer interest in maybe even vicarious kind of pleasure is the wrong word, but certainly affirmation from things like COVID you know, or from things like Brexit, or from all of these other things that seem to suggest that the basics or rules are being broken, because that gives them hope that what they've believed all this time is really true. So so it's funny the way the culture has sort of pushed us towards enjoying this as entertainment. I'm not quite sure it's entertainment for these guys. I think it's more than that. <laughs> There's an interesting thing about zombies, though, in, in games, is that you can kill large numbers of them, and they're already dead. So they're kind of guilt-free a vehicle for slaughter in many ways, which is an interesting way of looking well, at although it. Although all these zombie games seem to feature a lot of people who are not zombies, right? I mean, in some ways, well, like, that's where the trend has gone towards having these sort of desperate other humans be... I mean, it's almost the message of a lot of these games, right? Like, other humans are the worst people imaginable, not the zombies. And again, my kid has also got rather bored with that message. I mean, I yeah, wanted her to be a nihilist, but there are limits. <laughs> I find that fascinating. I mean, sometimes you think, yeah, books and novels and computer games... Do they reflect society back on us? And I think they do. And I also think they're generated from that society as well. So it's a bit of a bit of a circular thing. Mm. But in your opinion, do these sort of apocalyptic religious cults, do they shade into the ultra-religious, the sort of uh, areas and the, the sort of survivalist community? There does seem to be kind of overlap, if not everybody overlapping fully. They're, they seem to be overlapped in that Venn diagram of these areas. Yeah, although it's important to recognize that the kind of mass movement, if you like, of prophecy belief in the United States. First, I I don't think I could call it a cult just in terms of numbers, because we're talking about potentially tens of millions of people who buy into these premises. And the premise is, you know, that eventually there's going to be a moment called the rapture where uh, God reaches down and snatches away all the souls of true believers Then there is going to be a seven-year period in which terror and kind of chaos and nightmares ensue, and then Christ is going to come down and kill the Antichrist, and then we're going to get that perpetual human happiness that follows. So that vision, which is crafted in the 19th century by a couple of very prominent theologians, that vision is the one that's been kind of sold to mainstream Protestant Christians now for decades, but with particular power since the 1990s. And I would say that the, the basic outline of that is an orthodoxy for tens of millions of white evangelical Protestants, not just white, but white evangelical Protestants are the people who are its kind of heartland. So again, what to do with that? Because, I mean, that is, to me, bigger than a cult, or I tend to think of a cult as being somewhat smaller than tens of millions of people. Well, I would say, yeah, I mean, there's obviously going to be a point where a cult becomes a mainstream religion because I I bet Christianity didn't actually, well, it started out as a cult for sure. It started out with a small number of people historically, I would guess, and then grew and became a mainstream religion at some point. To get back to your question, though, not all of those tens of millions are like buying canned beans or figuring out like, you know, polishing their guns for the apocalypse. I think that's probably a smaller number of people. But in our own time, again, with all kinds of promises or prospects of societal challenges, you call them, maybe even societal collapse. I mean, you know, we just had the anniversary recently of 9-11. Those kinds of moments, obviously, for a minority amongst that larger group of Protestants who believe the basics of this, it really does force them into a kind of action. So what you might see is a relatively small group of people acting upon those larger beliefs to kind of get prepared. But but conversely, Jason, there are a bunch of people in the US that don't need prophecy to be survivalists, right? Yeah. And if you go online and have a look, there's a 
huge argument about how many guns you really do need to survive. And I'm thinking, well, what about food and water? But, you know, ammo ammo and guns seems to be the big thing for many of them. But to get back to this question of prepping, if you truly believe in the scheme I just outlined to you, you actually don't think you need to prep, right? Because you're going to be snatched away. So the cool thing about the rapture is that if you believe in all of this stuff, you are spared the tribulation is what the seven years of kind of hell and nightmarishness are called. So seven years in which earth is falling to pieces, you get to watch it all from heaven in a kind of like box seat. And then at the end, when Jesus comes down to duff up the Antichrist and inaugurate perpetual peace and kind of love and whatever, you get to come with him. So it's like he's driving the minibus down after seven years from heaven and you're back. I mean, albeit in a world that looks very different in a better way. So those guys are not themselves buying the beans and whatever else. And the really crazy thing about prophecy belief in the last sort of 20 or 30 years is once upon a time, the view would be that at that moment when the rapture happened, if you were not like on the rapture minibus, if you were not spirited away, you were done. (laughs) With the exception of Jewish people who were kind of given an out in the rapture scheme. It's like eventually Jewish people will be given a chance to kind of come back to God Obviously, if they say no, they're toast as well. But but in terms of like the scheme, they're given an exemption. What has happened in the last 30 years, though, is partly because of this really successful series of novels called the Left Behind books, written by a guy called Tim LaHaye and a sports writer turned kind of Christian writer called Jerry Jenkins. These have sold like hundreds of millions of copies. And they basically, the whole premise of the series is a bunch of people who are quite good Christians, but not brilliant Christians. So by quite good, I mean like a pilot of a 747 who turns around and looks slightly lasciviously at the flight attendant. He's not going to do anything, but he looks lasciviously enough that he's not raptured up to heaven. He becomes the leader of this kind of group of Christians who, again, are not perfect enough to be raptured, but are still pretty good people. And they basically fight the Antichrist during the tribulation. So they are the guys who then become the heroes of a sort of second chance movement. And this is really new and interesting, this idea that you might miss the rapture, but if you're willing to fight the Antichrist in a kind of Tom Clancy style geopolitical struggle around the world, then maybe you will still go to heaven. <laughs> that's quite interesting because that's almost Arthurian, the idea that you strive for perfection, but nobody can actually achieve perfection. But you'll get somewhere close to it. You might see the Holy Grail, but you won't actually get to touch it or be one with the Godhead, you know. It's also very American, right? Like yeah. there's always a second chance. So yeah, that's right. That's, that's really driven that book series, which has been phenomenally successful. I mean, they've been like kids' books in the series. I mean, they definitely moved into all of the demographics. And, um, you know, oh. it's exciting, right? Because to go back to the point you made earlier, it makes the present seem like the most important time in history. Mm, that's right. This whole area of thought has a big influence on American politics and therefore on the world to a certain extent. I mean, I don't want to make this too US focused because I'm interested in the sort of a bigger picture, in particular sort of medieval Europe. But American politics obviously highly influenced. But does this reflect itself in European society much at all? I think it's a bigger thing in the United States, or rather, I think it's kind of influence within Europe is a little more underground. But that's true for evangelicalism generally. I mean, I think that even though there is a thriving and, and growing British evangelical movement, say, it's nowhere near as prominent as the US version. And that's partly because the US version has really helped to create particularly the right wing, the kind of modern American right wing. It's kind of impossible to imagine the right wing that we have right now in the US without thinking about that massive kind of um, incursion of conservative Christians into politics from the 1950s 
onwards. And this rapture stuff, this kind of end time stuff is a part of that. Although, again, the weird thing is probably it's, I mean, and this is going to sound nuts, but probably the biggest political influence that rapture thinking has had is in the creation of Christian Zionists. So in the creation of this kind of large body of very politically active end times Christians who've become gigantic, kind of super, like, you know, more kind of patriotically pro-Israel, even the most Israelis. And the reason that these guys have moved into that space is that they believe that Israel will be the key to these end times, to the end time sequence. So aligning yourself with Israel has become for them a way to demonstrate what great prophecy believers they are, which, you know, a lot of Israelis find pretty funny, right? (laughs) Because it's like, well, it's nice to be supported, but we're being supported by these people that basically think we're going to be killed unless we convert. But they're probably wrong. So it's nice to be supported. So that's actually probably the largest influence because the group that was created by these Christian Zionists is called Christians United for Israel or Kufi. They now have, I think, after the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the second largest kind of lobbying group in the US that's pro-Israel. And again, it's like made up almost entirely of super right wing evangelical Protestants who believe the world's about to end. So that's weird. So Israel, that part of the world features heavily in the second coming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so to put it in crude terms, the philosophy or the kind of theory extrapolated, particularly from the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel, is that there'll be a war in the Middle East that the various nations in the Middle East will try to destroy. Well, actually, sorry, I'll back up. Firstly, that there will be an Israel. So actually, this is one place where prophecy believers went kind of mad. So in the 19th century, when this scheme was being set up by an evangelical guy called John Nelson Darby, he predicted that Jews would return to Israel and there'd be a Jewish state there. Again, this is sort of mentioned at various points in the Bible, the idea of the return of Jews. So it's actually not a 19th century phenomenon. I mean, in 18th century America, there was a theologian who actually wanted to row Jews from Connecticut to Israel. (laughs) You know, so all these obsessions in 17th century North America about whether the Indians were Jews. So again, just this notion that if we could just find some Jews and get them to go back to the Middle East, then we'll trigger the end time sequence. So this is just to say that 1948, when, of course, Israel was founded as a state and declared its independence, it became a banner headline for these guys because it was there in all of their end times prophecies. So in the final sequence here, you basically are supposed to get all of these other countries around Israel attacking Israel. God miraculously intervenes to help Israel. And then the Antichrist is this figure who seems like a super slick, really nice kind of like very caring guy who's going to try and bring peace to the Middle East, but is actually Satan. So he's very often been seen by contemporary prophecy theorists as a kind of cipher for the United Nations. Some people say he was Tony Blair. I'm not getting into that. But that notion that the Antichrist is this super slippery political figure who actually then ends up trying to do all this kind of globalist thinking like what's good for the world and turns out to be Satan, all that's based around intervening in the Middle East and conflict. So, so yeah, you've had this very strange, I mean, I'm still on their email list. I get these very strange emails from this big group in the US, which has, you know, Bibi Netanyahu come over and talk at their conference and has like President Trump talk at their conference. I have these weird emails saying stuff like lobby your congressman to say we should bomb Iran. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a good idea, is it? Wow. And it always has been like the last 20 years. That's been one of the biggest political kind of influences here. Um, Some people said George Bush believed some of this stuff as well, and that he thought after 9-11 that, you know, this might be the beginning of the end time sequence. But the evidence for its influence on him seems a lot thinner than it does on these Christian Zionists. So 
It is interesting the way human brains work, though, because even if you didn't believe in that stuff, you're probably culturally familiar with it yeah. if you live in that sort of part of the world. And then things happen which ring a bell and you go, oh, hang on a second. That echoes for me. And then confirmation bias and selective facts sort of start to fall into place. And the human brain is so vulnerable to so many cognitive biases, it's it's quite frightening, really, that we got this far. So think about some of these specifics of what the sequence, the end time sequence is going to look like. I mean, I'll ask you this because you may know it, but do you know which is the demographic group that has the lowest vaccination rate in the US right now for COVID? No, but I would guess evangelical, right? So it's white evangelical Protestants. And one of the reasons that the rates are so low is that within these prophecy circles, the notion that COVID is actually connected to the end time sequence, and particularly the idea that the vaccine may be a way effectively of controlling people, so the mark of the beast or whatever you want to say, this all plays into these incredibly deep-seated anxieties rooted in the notion that the Antichrist, when he shows up, is going to be this big international player. So, I mean, you know, we didn't use to use the word globalist, at least we didn't if we weren't anti-Semites. But now, like, that's apparently out there in a big way, right? Globalist, globalist. That's the thing they think the Antichrist is. So one of the other ironies, one of the other challenges in all this politically is, as we move into a world where so many of the challenges we face are kind of collective, so again, whether you want to talk about climate change or COVID pandemics or even security issues, the idea of coming together as a planet and finding ways to collaborate internationally is anathema to these prophecy Christians because they believe from the rapture sequence that international cooperation is something that the Antichrist is in charge of. It's interesting, isn't it? And that is a sort of self-reinforcing thing. You know, if you were if you were somebody who was making money from people, you would want them to not look elsewhere for help. So you inoculate them with this idea that if there is international help, if there is, that's somehow evil. Yeah. Uh, and regardless of the outcome, whether the outcome is better for everybody, it's definitely evil because it's the Antichrist. It's a very unfortunate situation. I think the kind of politics Mm. of it, and of course, it's most unfortunate, to be honest, for the believers. I mean, you look at a state like Florida, which has been in absolute chaos now for the past few months. And, you know, it's very clear to me that there is a lot of prophecy belief in that state. Again, it's not to say that all of the anti-vaxxers are prophecy Christians, but Mm. there are much higher percentages of vaccine reluctance kind of holdout or opposition within this community. And these are some of the ideas... And again, like COVID is, I don't know, fingers crossed COVID, we can kind of get through. Climate change, we're probably not going to get through, certainly not in a recognisable way, unless we really do get concerted action. Mm. So again, the idea that the international is seen as the satanic is this sort of very, very weird, but incredibly important consequence of this prophecy belief, which again, was just basically this dude from Ireland or Irish family in the 19th century, John Nelson Darby, and has then kind of exploded in 20th century American Christianity in particular. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The, the issue I was actually, I wondered whether you, you've looked into this still because the, the death rates amongst people with COVID in a particular voting section of the U.S apparently significantly higher than in other areas. And is it significant enough to have a meaningful effect on voting patterns? I mean, one would think it, it ought to, in a way. One of the, yeah, I mean, one of the things about US politics is that a lot of the, uh, to some extent, this is becoming more and more true of UK politics as well, but the kind of gerrymandering of districts has meant that you'd have to kill off quite a lot of like right. right-wing voters for it to make very much of a difference. So, I mean, it right. may be in some statewide contests you begin to see a hit, but certainly in terms of the district for Congress, for the House of Representatives, yeah, I mean, you know, basically the progressive voters are all shoehorned into the cities. And, you know, they have those weird electoral maps with all these strange squiggles and mm. to try and make sure you bring people in that you know are going to vote Democrat and make sure that the district next to it stays Republican. So I think that the worst thing about all of this politically is that, as you said before, there's a self-reinforcing element to mm. it. And I think you can see this in the Trump years as well. I mean, probably the biggest challenge in the US politics right now is finding a way to kind of reconnect people who have completely given up on the idea of government, on the idea of media, really in some respects on the idea of the nation as it really is. They may have an idealized idea of 1776, but how do you reconnect with those guys? And of course, these beliefs, unless you can shed them, it's going to be very hard to make a connection with the nation again, you know, without getting rid of these beliefs. Because, I mean, what really drew me into all of these guys, first of all, is, you know, I'd always been taught that Americans kind of believed that they were God's great gift and God wanted them to save the world and stuff. And I was fascinated when I started doing my PhD to find out there were all these Americans that didn't want God, didn't believe God was going to save the world and didn't think the US was better than other nations even because everything was going to hell. And I was like, well, what's that about? So part mm. of this is also an unraveling of the hold of the nation state, even in a nation that's probably more hyper-patriotic than any other, this stuff does actually corrode that bond. And again, politically, that's a huge challenge. Could it be a deliberate policy to provoke this in social media and online by agents from outside the culture that we're talking about? If you wanted to help destabilize, you know, the, the idea of attacking America physically is probably out of the question, this is not going to happen. They're, they're far too armed and far too wealthy yep. and far too big a military. But the societal bonds are potentially vulnerable. And one could imagine that there are tactics involved in, in doing this. So conspiracy theories, flooding of social media with fake accounts that sort of reinforce people's extreme beliefs, try to drive a wedge between otherwise fairly similar groups of people and make them literally fight each other. 
you could imagine that as a scenario quite easily, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a dick about this. I mean, it's like when people said that Russia was responsible for Brexit or Russia was responsible for Trump. I just, I mean, again, talk about a cynic. Like, I believe we do most of the worst things to ourselves and each other. And I do think also, I mean, you're right on one level, and particularly in the United States, that these beliefs, they effectively divide people who in other ways are similar. And I definitely think that's true when it comes to American kind of patriotism, which, if anything, has been more of a kind of adhesive in American society than it ever has been here in Britain, or certainly not in my lifetime in Britain. So, you know, Americans are all patriots, right? But I do think that there are some other patterns to look into. And I mean, some of them are regional. A lot of them are based on inequality. And again, I don't want to suggest that this is all about neoliberalism. But I do think there is a bit of an economic element in this, or, or rather people who found their lives have gotten increasingly tough over the last 20, 25 years are not necessarily people who are, are going to hold out against these ideas that the world is coming to an end. So again, we go back to what we were talking about earlier, where you have a trajectory for your life, and then there's a trajectory for society as a whole. And all of our life's trajectories, all of our personal trajectories, they all kind of end badly in a way. I'm sorry to say, I, I don't want to think about death, but like they all end that way, right? But again, society carries on. And whether you do it through your children or whether you do it through kind of public sort of civic-mindedness or... It's nice to have people invested in the idea that the end of them is not the end of everything else. So I think from a kind of economic perspective in particular in the US, you know, where all these troubles with healthcare and drug addiction and, and all public services failing and whatever else, there are some real challenges there because people don't actually feel that there is a lot for them in a life outside of prophecy. And that to me explains part of this. So I do think there's a socioeconomic element to it too. It's not the only thing, but it's definitely there. Am I right in saying that the concept of the apocalypse has been around since, well, for a long, long, long time in human history? It seems to be a kind of recurring theme. Yeah, Book of Revelation, the, at least, yeah. yeah. But also across the world. I think, the, I don't know much about it, but pre-Christian religions, do they tend to have a sort of, oh, Ragnarok, I suppose Ragnarok yeah. was one. You know? Well, most religions tend to have something which, again, works in the space between the death of themselves and the death of everything. So, I mean, mm. figuring out ways to kind of, manage the prospect of a collective end when one knows that one's personal life journey ends. It's just a human universal, right? And we all do it again. Mm. I mean, again, in this sense, I'm really keen to stress that I don't think the prophecy believers have like a completely different mindset than we do. I mean, nobody necessarily likes to think about the prospect of their own death. And, you know, whether we take pride in our family or we take pride in our achievements, or if you're a really vain author, maybe you take pride in your book. I don't know. But we all find ways of imagining that we will live on somehow, right? And prophecy mm. belief is very much about that notion of meaning in the end. Because in a sense, the end of the world is the most important thing that's ever happened. And for them, the world has to end for it to get truly better. And that's the manoeuvre, which is, you know, once it's over, you can have the new heaven and new earth, which is why well, you don't necessarily want these guys to work in missile silos. Or... And obviously, for a lot of apocalypse cults, they set timelines for things. So numbers and the significance of numbers are, are quite important. I mean, I lived through the year 2000 and there was quite a lot of conversation. Well, the, the Y2K bug, for example. Yeah which a lot of work went into, and it did cause a few problems. It wasn't as bad as it could have been if the work hadn't been done, potentially. But I imagine there were a lot of apocalypse cults thinking that that number was significant, because it must have been at the, at the turn of the first millennium as well. I would imagine, mm -hmm. you know, when those numbers are significant and everybody looks at it and thinks, right, this has to be significant, as opposed to, no, it's just abstract because somebody started somewhere <laughs> and we've counted well, this one. Well, one thing you uh, discover when you read these guys' books 
Some of them are very funny. But one thing you discover is that actually the kind of readership here has a capacity to absorb disappointment, which is really impressive. So you go back to the 1840s and you had the guy who set up the Seventh-day Adventist church in the US. So this guy, William Miller, really, really interesting guy, effectively kind of came from a fairly poor background, got into preaching in a big way, but basically said the world's going to end in, you know, 1843. And if you're in Philadelphia with me, we can basically watch the show. So, you know, he gets all of these people, tens of thousands of people to come to Philadelphia. And they're all like, the world hasn't ended. I mean, some of them have sold everything. They've bought these kind of waiting robes, as they call them, these sort of big white robes to wait for Jesus to arrive. And none of it happens. And then Miller is like, I made a mistake. Uh, it's actually in six months' time. And so then everyone comes back six months later. Oh, I made a mistake. It's actually next year. And then after the third one, everyone is like, this guy is not telling us the truth or is a loser or both. So that kind of specificity with everything that goes with it, obviously, because people have made such commitments to believe in the day, then that ends really badly. But someone like this guy who wrote the Left Behind novels, Tim LaHaye, I remember he wrote, I think, in a book, uh, maybe in the 50s or the 60s, that within two generations of Israel's founding, the world would end. Well, this Tim LaHaye guy, the guy who wrote that in the 50s or the 60s, he lived to be like 90. Uh, and I met him when I was doing my book, actually. So live a really long time as a prophecy guy. Things go badly, right? Because you're around to see the fact that the date you predicted. So a big advance there. The 20th century guy, Tim LaHaye, is talking about generations rather than saying it's going to happen in 1843. But, you know, you have other prophecy uh, writers who say stuff's going to happen before 2010 or 2015. It doesn't happen. And then they just write another bestseller. Right. So it's literally the human mind, their followers, I presume a small fraction of them fall away and go, oh dear, that was rubbish. But quite a lot of them post-justify why it's changed, I would think. I mean, the, the modern conspiracy, arguably secular, perhaps not. The, the, the whole QAnon, sort of odd, interesting, weird. It's almost like a computer game, actually, in some ways. It, yep. it, it does follow game, a lot of game theory. But they had those sorts of beliefs that were going to happen specifically after the election, and then it didn't happen. And listening to some of them interviewed, they rationalize it. They create more layers of structure around their belief to say why they were wrong the first time around. Yeah, I was thinking um, before we um, started chatting today, when I was thinking about what we might talk about, I did think a bit about QAnon because... But in some respects, like we're coming at this in having our chat now, you use the cult word and I've been like the sort of wishy-washy liberal. Oh, I don't want you to think about this guy's just as cult. I get that, right? Like on some level, calling this a cult is empirically justified. But with something like QAnon in particular, I've been wondering how much the kind of dynamics or like the grammar of prophecy is baked into what they do. Because what it would suggest, I guess, to go back to something you said earlier on, like we actually don't need any Christian, any kind of religious foundation for this at all. What this can basically be turned into is a kind of quest, as you put it, to go off and find the truth about what very powerful people are doing. And if you can like find out that truth and expose it, you can kind of beat the game, right? And again, that to me, that dynamic, which certainly is embedded in the culture and video games and in other things, it's definitely part of prophecy too, because as I said a bit earlier on, I mean, in some respects, prophecy is like, here is the puzzle. And if you can solve the puzzle, you win. So the tough part about this is to think about what you will smash up on your way to trying to solve the puzzle. So whether that's the lives or reputations of individuals, whether that's the capital building, whether that's democratic politics, <laughs> but like what gets thrown into the fire here for you to try and solve 
the puzzle. And I think there is something quite compelling in terms of a connection between that QAnon star stuff and prophecy theory. Again, without wishing to say all prophecy theorists are sort of, you know, QAnon types, there's definitely a connection there. I'm just thinking about it sort of in a more abstract way. I mean, back in the 80s, there were a, a bunch of sort of quests for the golden hair and you had the book and you had to sort of solve the puzzle. And it was a real treasure. It was eventually found and it was quite obscure, actually, when you try to work it backwards. You go, how oh, was anybody supposed to work that one out? But there was genuinely, with those books, somebody genuinely set a puzzle and reverse engineered a series of clues to an actual, you know, really nice looking sort of treasure. Um, here's where technology makes such a difference, right? I mean, yeah, so yeah. having the internet. I mean, imagine doing that masquerade rabbit hunt in the internet age. I mean, it'd be like trying to get petrol. I mean, there's just be thousands of people with shovels trying to like go to the same place. Um, I, I think the internet's changed so much because in effect it has sort of created in the minds of people who are more conspiracist minded or more prophecy minded, the notion that finally they can climb outside of the echo chamber of the conventional. So if you think mm -hmm. for a second about the conventional as not being religious or for conspiracy theorists, maybe part of the conspiracy, the internet gives them the opportunity to climb outside that, which means both they can look at it and talk about it together. And they've got this means of communicating without its, you know, being an intermediary. Mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. massive and mostly bad. So yeah, effectively, yeah. it means these people are not isolated, but as you said earlier, in a kind of community. But it's one that's actually very critical of the mainstream. And, and that's a problem for us, I think, as societies. And from a technology perspective, the algorithms that choose in a completely amoral way what they want to show you next and what they care about is engagement. Will you watch this next thing? What are the tiny fraction more percentage chance of you watch will tend to drift in a particular direction that's sort of fairly well established and therefore the concept of going down the rabbit hole and people do talk about going down a rabbit hole into a mad place and i've watched a video the other day they were flat earther mm -hmm. they were filming a sunset and they were talking over the top of it that the sun wasn't actually setting while filming the setting sun they were pointing up into the sky and saying i know it looks like the sun is setting <laughs> but in fact i can tell by the shadows which of course they couldn't that the sun is higher in the sky and i'm pointing at it and it's actually it's actually going away it's not setting and i'm thinking this is an extraordinary example of the human brain deceiving itself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in spite of what's there our pattern solving brains are so good at protecting us from being eaten by lions on the African savannah, which is probably where it all evolved in the first case. We see lions everywhere. And even when we're not seeing lions, they're still there for us. And human brains are extraordinarily plastic things and can deal with disappointment, as you said, so incredibly flexibly. Well, I think there's also a question here of, I mean, this may be one place where part of my brain wiring is uh, maybe not sympathetic is the wrong word, but maybe I find myself. So, so thinking about the internet, say, as a source of information that's kind of outside the box, if you like, like what does it mean to allow people freely in a society to communicate with each other without mediation? What does it mean effectively to mean that like the aggregation of um, truth, like the kind of um, gatekeeping that exists in the mainstream media to determine what's right and what isn't right? What happens when you get rid of that? And I think we are overwhelmingly, those of us who are more in the kind of liberal space and are not prophecy theorists or whatever, overwhelmingly we diss that. Like we're like, those guys are crazies. But the place where the rubber hits the road for me is, I genuinely think, just about climate, say, I think there is a very real chance in the coming decades that we will collectively fail to deal with 
the implications of what we've been doing to the planet for the past like 100 years or whatever. So there's a very real possibility that within our current kind of box of mainstream thinking, we're going to struggle to deal with this, or at least struggle to deal with it in a way that doesn't create massive disruption and even chaos. That kind of means I'm like the prophecy guys, right? <laughs> I mean, I want to tell you that I think empirically I might be right about that. But at the same time, the best way for me to kind of share that view might not be on BBC News, because BBC News maybe doesn't want to put the climate change debate in that way or whatever else. So I can feel the it if you like, of that sense that there might be something going on in our world that we actually don't do a good job in the mainstream of averting or of acknowledging. So maybe, again, that's one reason I felt not an affinity for, but certainly a desire to understand these guys. Mm. But obviously that is a pretty, pretty crazy example. It is interesting, though, how sort of events, so that the whole COVID thing has sort of shocked people into having to think about their commute in some cases, how they work, how they earn a living what they actually want to do with their life. There's this thing going around called the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Lots of people are giving up one job, seeking another job, thinking it's going to be better or worse or different. So the pandemic, whilst it's been disruptive to society, you could imagine good things coming out of it afterwards about people using electric cars more, for example, with this recent shock panic of petrol being brought in the UK. Suddenly everybody decides petrol is in short supply, which it wasn't. And everybody's gone and filled up all their cars and rubbish cans and all sorts of things. So there was a shortage. It was generated by people and it's probably going to be over in a couple of days time. But does that sort of make people start to think, what about electric vehicles? And what about not commuting in the same way as I did? And I, and I wonder whether sometimes out of these sort of disaster scenarios, you get people considering things in a bit more detail because they're forced to. And I, I'm kind of always a bit positive about these things. What's the, has had a lot of individual tragedies. I wonder whether these things give us a moment to pause and think about what we want to do. Yeah. I'm I'm flying a lot less. I've cut down my international flying. I used to fly to the States, particularly five, six times a year. Mm -hmm. And I cut that down to once a year over the past five years. And, And I'm now thinking I can speak to people like I'm speaking to you and have long conversations. And an hour's conversation can take an hour as opposed to several days. Have you found your employees? I mean, is it as easy to kind of feel in touch with the folks who are working for you? And I mean, because I know working from home for a lot of people in the tech industry, it's been a particular challenge. I think there's got to be a balance. I think, yes, there is a challenge. And I think communication is worse as a result. But what we're trying to think about doing is encouraging people to come in one or two days a week to actually physically meet people and talk to them. And I think the human condition needs other people physically around it sometimes, not all the time, because we all like moments of solitude and, yeah, and yeah. quiet. But there's a sort of balance, there's a happy medium there, as there is in most things. You can have far too much chocolate, but you can also have not enough chocolate. Well, I hope you're right about this disruption thing. I mean, I, you won't appreciate this analogy, but I often think about the uh, HBO Westworld series, right. you know, where they're always talking about loops. And I do think it's true. I mean, obviously, it's quite a crude metaphor, and and it's also a repeated one in that show. But this notion that, in effect, they are the real humans because they're constantly running down these loops. I mean, that is the way that our society is very often structured. And in a way, culture is all about affirming loops, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. it offers escape from them, but it also affirms a lot of those daily loops. So something like COVID comes along, I absolutely think it breaks the loop. But again, to get back to prophecy, folks, those are guys who believe constantly that they're breaking the loop. So they believe that their belief, their view of the end times is actually giving them an escape 
from all of the kind of mundane nonsense that you or I might use to kind of determine the loops that we walk on a daily basis. And actually, there are real advantages to breaking the loop. But I think the same thinking that might allow you to think that the climate change issue means we should have electric cars or we should insert our homes better or the government should be spending much more. There is a way in which that thinking that breaks the loop is not completely unlike this prophecy thinking. Mm. And actually, there are two sides of the same coin, which is kind of looking at the world as it is and saying, is this really right? <laughs> so there's a quizzical nature to it, even though it can end in those situations with a kind of closed down view, right? A kind of marginalized, mm. closed down view. So I, yeah. I always find there's a difference between a rational fear and an irrational fear. Mm. You know, people go, oh, you're, you're paranoid because you're frightened of, of tigers. It's like, no, no, no. Tigers are actually quite rational to be frightened of. And, and sharks are quite rational to be frightened of in certain circumstances. You know, being frightened of clowns, arguably, is not as rational. Although there are some pretty terrifying clowns out there. Maybe that is totally rational, knowing some of the clowns I've encountered as a child. Um, but I'm trying to think of something that is irrational to be frightened of. Men with beards or something. I, I don't know. I know some scary men with beards. I just think it's a sliding scale, right? So, I mean, yes. uh, and also the construction of the rational in history is, again, I won't get into it, but I mean, obviously the definition of the rational in the 18th century or in the 1980s could look very different to today. So mm. to get back to this idea of these loops, I mean, in a way the loops do change, but they're being constantly generated and very often in a way that suggests that you can't walk beyond them. So, so much of what are kind of pioneering, you know, sort of life-affirming, social-changing kind of advances in society are about breaking those loops. But also you have some groups that are determined to escape from them whose influence seems way less rational and whose kind of effects can actually be quite malign. So I, I do think, again, that the, the common theme in all of this is people who are trying to climb outside the now, the kind of everyday and the possible. But some people do that in ways that create positive things and others, uh, it can become its own new prison, right? Believing the world is about to end. That's that's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we're about out of time. Thank you very much for that. There's a really interesting conversation to be had about, about all of these things. We could probably talk for hours about it. I find the human mind particularly interesting, how it works, not necessarily the details of what it's doing and the outcomes, but the processes by which human minds think things up and how easy it is for us to deceive ourselves. And also how easy it is to assess the current situation around you as terrible. And sometimes you've got to look back and realize actually it is much better than it used to be. You need historians for that, right? You know, historians yeah. say the past is a terrible place. <laughs> yes, exactly. People sometimes ask me, would you want to go back to the medieval period? It's like, I'd love to see it. But probably I'd only want to go back if I was a certain type of person as opposed to... a terrible just... mid-period Peter Hyams film. I, I know. <laughs> so I'd love to see it, to see how accurate our belief about how it was is. But I think we would be utterly shocked and probably from the Western perspective, very unprepared for the hard physical labour, actually, just to survive in those circumstances. So I think we have it a lot better now. And people have got a lot more time to worry about what the future is going to be like than perhaps they did back back then. Yeah. They shrugged and got on with picking more turnips. And they died when they were 32. Or each other. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Gosh, right. Too dark that's uh, the, for the end of this. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for, for spending time. Was there anything else you wanted to add? No, we'll tell people they can find my ancient book. If you guys mm. are interested in this stuff, uh, it's called Have a Nice Doomsday, not my title. 
uh, why millions of Americans are looking forward to the end of the world. You probably find out on Abe or, you know, it's just not something that people are selling anymore. But I think it's a fun book. And it's very interesting to get into the lives and the minds of the folks who live with the stuff every day and also like pay their taxes or get their car washed. Or, I mean, those are the kinds of weird disjunctions I was really interested in going off and seeing. Wonderful. Thank you very much for spending time chatting. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.